This month's podcasts are sponsored by Aubergine Legal. Do you sometimes worry that your business isn't meeting all its legal compliance requirements and wonder if you're ticking all the legal boxes? Are you losing sleep worrying about a piece of legislation that you may or may not be complying with? Perhaps you need some help with your client contracts or your data protection compliance. Or maybe you're worried that your website doesn't have the right documents or legal notices in the right place. Perhaps you have a brand that you want to protect with a trademark. How about if you could outsource it all and eliminate all of your worries? If so, then get in touch with Aubergine Legal, a friendly commercial legal consultancy offering practical and clear commercial legal advice without the overwhelming legal jargon, taking the worry away and helping you to protect your business and minimise your risks. Aubergine offers a free 30-minute consultation if you have any questions or want to find out if they can help. And you can access this link and book your free 30-minute call via the link in the show notes. Welcome to the Bring Your Product Ideas to Life podcast. Practical advice and inspiration to help you create and sell your own physical products. Here's your host, Vicky Weinberg. Thank you so much for tuning in today. I know that I've talked about research and validating your product ideas before. In fact, I've talked about this in quite a few episodes. And I was absolutely delighted to meet today's guest as she really is an expert in this field. Um, I certainly think there's something that I can learn from her and I hope that you can learn something from her too. So Abby Turnis is the founder and director of Embark Insight. She helps small and medium-sized businesses analyse their customers so they can make informed, confident marketing decisions that help them connect to their ideal customers and create products that meet their customers' needs without spending hours doing it themselves or spending a fortune. And what Abby is actually going to talk to us today is about if you haven't got the budget to, to use a service like hers, what are the ways that you can go about doing market research and customer research yourself and she's also going to talk about the importance of carrying out that kind of research so I really hope you find this conversation useful and um, let's hand you over to Abby. So welcome Abby um, could you tell us a little bit about Embark and what you do? Of course so basically to say it in the simplest way possible I help businesses make smarter business decisions by helping them understand their customers. So this is typically done with a variety of market research techniques, things that most people would be familiar with, like surveys, um, focus groups, and interviews that are not too dissimilar to what we're actually doing now. So all quite quite informal in some respects, quite conversational, um, ultimately to try and get to what people are really thinking, really believing, really feeling about whatever topic we're talking about. So... If I was to try and summarize what the majority of my business is, typically the questions I help my clients answer, I guess, fall into three broad areas. So the first is ad testing and evaluating whether the adverts that they've designed achieve the objectives that they wanted them to achieve. And really what that boils down to is whether they connect to and resonate with their target customers and how we can optimize that and make them do the job better. Um, the second big area is product testing, obviously why we're doing this, this chat today and evaluating whether they should launch new product ideas or if they need more work before they, should, they go into production, before they launch them. And the third big area is around brand development. Um, basically, what strategic elements clients need to focus on when they're building a brand, if that's at the starting point of their journey or if they're developing and maintaining their brand. So yeah, that's what I do. 
So yes, just then to make sure that, that I am, at least I'm understanding it. So you work for companies and you speak to their potential customers to get an idea of all of the things you've just outlined above. So you're working for, for companies and speaking to their potential customers. Does that sum it up? That does. Perfect. And so how do you sort of know who a company's ideal customer is? Is that something they come to you with or is that something you work with them on identifying? A little bit of both, actually. So it depends on where they're at in their journey and where they've come from. So I have worked with companies that are startups and they're still working out who their target customer actually is. And I would then help them in the research identify who that is by having a look at things like who, um, who finds their idea appealing. But it's not only who finds it appealing because you also need to look at it from the business side. So things like um, what is the minimum uh, price that they're willing to sell it at and who can actually afford that product. So it's a little bit of an art when you're at that early stage of developing the picture of the ideal customer of who would you like to speak to as well as who can afford it and then who actually finds it appealing and I guess finding the sweet spot in all of that. So I've worked with clients at that very early stage. Um, and once we've got that, worked with them to articulate what their brand story is to appeal to those people. And then companies that are more established um, typically know who they or have a broad idea of who their target customer is. So they often come to me with that. So it's a bit of both, to be quite honest. Okay, so I've, I've got a few questions, if that's okay, just following on from that. So the first one is, say... Um, so when we talk about the ideal customer, because I agree with you, that's definitely, you know, the starting point is knowing who the customer is for your product in this example. So what kind of things do you think you should know about your ideal customer and how would you go about finding this out? Um, so if someone listening to this podcast is thinking, oh, I haven't done anything, you know, I haven't even thought about my customer, what kind of questions should they be asking? So the first question they should be answering for themselves is who they want to talk to, who they think is the right person for it. Now, presumably when somebody's going out and designing and developing a product, they have identified that there is a need that exists or a problem that needs solving. And that's the starting point. Who has that problem? Who has that issue? So I think a lot of that at that early stage is about your own intuition and you've decided to develop a product for a very good reason. Use your intuition. You've got experience there. Don't, don't put that aside as less important. Once you've got that and once you've got your picture of what um, price you're willing to sell it at, uh, the very lowest in any event, and you've got a picture of that, then I think that there are, I'd say, four key questions you need to be able to answer about your ideal customer. The first is a socioeconomic one. So this is their personal or household income, education, working status, that sort of profile. Um, because that ultimately informs what their affordability is and what their needs are and how involved they're going to be in making that decision. The next thing is demographics. Obviously, if that's relevant for your product. So demographics, I mean things like age, gender, location, that sort of thing. Now, personally, I think this, these demographic ones only need to be included if it's relevant for your, for your service or your product. So for example, gender is not relevant for my service. So when I think about my ideal customer, I don't think about a gender because a business who needs to make smarter business decisions can be either gender. But if your product is targeting mums, obviously there's a, um, 
there's a gender demographic that you need to be considering there. The third thing that I would say people should be considering is what the attitudes towards your category actually are. So um, let's say you've got a health product, um, something like green juice. Um, so you, your, your product is green juice. You might want to think about how people feel about that category as a whole, the health category. So maybe you would say, um, I want to target people who always search for low sugar products or um, only want to have pure drinks that have no added ingredients or something like that. So starting to get a profile of how they feel about your category and your wider category, so the health category in that example. And then where things start getting really fun um, is actually having a think about how they feel about life as a whole. And this is where um, you can start playing with things like their values, what's important to them, um, what drives the decisions that they make, and that sort of thing. And once you've got that part, which is actually the hardest part, I'd say, to get, but once you've got that and you start building that profile, you can actually start creating communications and articulating your brand story and creating products that really resonate with those people because you're tapping into who they are as people. I've got a great example of that, actually. It was a project I was working on with a startup designer shoe company. And they, it was at the end of last year, so they're still in the launch phase um, Unfortunately, things have been halted a little bit um, with production in Italy at the moment, but they, are, they were looking at who their target audience was, and one of the key values that came out in their ideal customer was independence. And so we actually worked together about how to articulate their brand story to connect on that independence value level. And ultimately, what she decided to do was instead of using the brand name that had been her working brand name up until that point, she actually decided to rather tell her own story of why she was launching the company and change the name to her name. So it really connected on that, on that value level. Now, your other question was how people can actually go about doing this, and especially if they're not going to be conducting formal market research. I think that there are a number of ways that you can do it and actually build a really positive and strong and robust profile. The first is by observing your ideal client. And all you need to do is get a little bit creative about thinking where they are. Now, obviously, at the moment, we're all online, and that doesn't mean that your ideal customer isn't busy interacting with your category. So you just need to think about where they are. Social media is absolutely fantastic for that. Facebook groups around certain topics are thriving. So getting yourself into those Facebook groups and observing what they're doing, what they're talking about, what questions they're asking about can help you to start creating a picture of what's important to them, what they're looking for. Once we're out of lockdown, Obviously, going and observing them in the real world is fantastic. And I think there are two sides of this, going and looking at them in the category interactions. So if I stick with the green juice example, maybe you could go to Holland and Barrett and see what people are doing at the shop counter, at the shop shelf, even having a look at what's actually on the shelf and which brands have the most prominence, um, what colors those brands have, what um, marks out your category. So seeing how your ideal customers interacting with your category, but also trying to find them somewhere else because they are consumers of other things too. So your green juice person, if we're going to take a really obvious example, might also be going to yoga studios or doing park runs, but they might also be going to the pub. And trying to understand those contradictions is actually where you can start creating a really interesting profile 
of that person because you suddenly you move from being a wooden puppet to a real person. That makes sense. Um, oh, sorry to interrupt, Debbie. So I can see how you would be able to do that online. So I think Facebook groups are a great way of finding out information, especially if you use the search function and you can search for certain keywords, so perhaps things around your product or the area you're looking to get into just to see what people are actually talking about. How would you, in real life, how would you suggest you go around observing? Would you actually have conversations with people or would you simply... Um, watch how would you suggest someone were to do that if they wanted to do it themselves i think a little bit of both it depends on how bold they're feeling i would certainly start with just pure observation seeing what they're doing um and just getting a sense of you know even really small things people don't think about but what clothes they're wearing are they more formal? Are they more informal? Because that starts giving you a picture of the sort of language that you can use. If you know that they are someone who's a bit more formal or someone who's a bit more informal, it gives you an idea of what they're doing in their spare time. Or, you know, let's say you're observing your um, ideal customer, you're hanging around Holland and Barrett and you're observing your ideal customer, and they're repeatedly coming in in active way. Um, you can start making some assumptions about what that looks like, what their working days are. They're, they're quite possibly not working in corporate, for example. So you can start making some assumptions. And then once you've got that basic picture, absolutely, if you've got the guts, go and ask them if you can ask a few questions, um, either while they're standing there or once they've walked out. The one thing with being in shops is sometimes shops get a little bit funny about you um, – coming in harassing as they view it, their customers. So you do need to potentially be a little bit sneaky with that. Um, but generally, I find most people are quite open to it if you're just going to have a quick five-minute conversation about something that they've already done, because more often than not, it's something that they care about. And for anyone who's listening to this and is just and the, and the thought of this is filling them with dread, because um, I know there will be some people who are thinking, oh, I don't think I could do that. Would you say that you can get enough out of doing your customer research online? I think it gives you a starting point. It gives you a, a, a picture of what's going on, the language they're using. And if you want to, putting questions into those Facebook groups or um, that sort of thing to help start building up their profile and seeing what people answer, I think you do get enough to then take that forward on your own bat and your own intuition and building on it. Because ultimately, when you're developing your ideal customer, it's not you, you, what you're ultimately aiming for is a really robust picture almost of one person, but it's not based on only one person. So you are creating an avatar as such. So you are going to do part of that on your own assumptions. And I think to build on your point about people listening to that and being filled with dread, and I can totally see that. When I first started doing this job, the thought of going and approaching people to do interviews was singularly one of the most off-putting things about this career but I think that there are other ways that you can do it like analyzing your own customer base if you've already got a customer base and having a look at who those people are who your typical purchasers are or looking at any interactions that you have had with your with your existing customers or potential customers and how they spoke or what sort of questions they were asking you and that can be things obviously on social media but also email phone if you're lucky enough to have something like a call center so actually you can start from data that already exists um, and the other place that you can go to is talking to people that sell your product so 
or places that you'd like your product to be sold. So going to them, if you know that you're going to be going onto a marketplace or aiming to get onto a marketplace anyway, then you can go and talk to them and get a picture of the sorts of customers that they've got, that how they see their um, the profile of their customers and use that to build your own. That's a fantastic point. Thank you. That's a really great idea. Because I know for me, the thought of actually going and talking to people in real life, um, we're not talking to people in real life, but talking to them about, you know, asking them questions. Yeah, that terrifies me. So I'm glad that for those of us that, you know, aren't maybe comfortable doing that, there are alternatives. Um, I probably just want to take a step back because I think it might be good to actually talk a little bit about the importance of actually doing research. So, you know, what, how and why you need to do any kind of product research in the first place and what you'll get out of it. So are you okay to talk about that a little bit, please? Of course. It's something I'm quite passionate about. You'll be surprised to know. <laughs> um, now, one thing that I do, I do notice, having done incubator workshops myself and just generally being on a lot of small business forums, is that I think a lot of people are very aware of the need to do market research. And I hear a lot of people talking about, oh, you need to ask your customer. Definitely talk to your customer. Make sure you're connecting with your customer. So I think that this is a brilliant starting point that people have that awareness. It feels like that part of the education job doesn't necessarily need to be done. I think the, the problem is that the research isn't always done in the best way possible, to say that in the most diplomatic way that I can. Um, and, and, and I think the problem with that is when research isn't done properly, it means that you're not getting the right answers to your questions. And when you're then going and making big business decisions, like whether you should launch a product or what price you should put it at, then you are making big business decisions on incorrect information. And that terrifies me. If I knew that I was making business decisions on something that was quite big, that was based on information that was false, that would make me feel really uncomfortable and fill me up with a lot of um, discomfort. So I think that's probably one of the biggest problems where you get all enthusiastic, you go out and you do your research, but you're not actually doing it in the best way possible. And where I've seen typically the biggest mistakes coming from are in two areas. So who people are choosing to interview or survey and how they're actually going about doing it. So if we start with who, I think you know, you, you take somebody who's gone, okay, I need to do market research. Yes, I'm all over this. I'm going to go make myself a little survey on SurveyMonkey or Type 4. Maybe I'll do a focus group in my kitchen. And of course, so far, so good. But the problem is that they're often doing that with family and friends. And the first problem with that is often those family and friends aren't actually their ideal customer. Now, let's assume, let's take that problem out of the equation. So they've decided I'm not going to interview my granddad because he's not my ideal customer. But, you know, the rest of my friends, they're definitely my ideal customer. Now, the problem is that they're too close to your story, your context, to give true and genuine feedback. So what ends up happening is one of two things. Either they're overly positive because they want to make you feel good, or they're overly negative because they don't want you to fail. So they're very, very cautious um, on your behalf. And on top of that, because they're so close to your context, they know what effort you've put in. They know all of the um, values and morals and ethics that you've got. And 
So they, when they evaluate your product and give you feedback, they're giving it to you with all of that context in mind. Now, of course, your real-life customer wouldn't know all of that when they saw your product. So they'd see it and make a snap decision about whether it's for them or not. So going and interviewing your friends and family, whilst gives you some answers, is not going to give you a real-life reflection of what your actual customers were doing. I think a great example of this is Innocent Smoothies. Before Innocent launched, they actually surveyed their family and friends and all of their family members told them not to do it, that it was too risky. And at that point, it was a completely new category and ready to drink drinks. So their family said, no, you guys cannot quit your day job. You cannot go that way um, because it's, it's too much. The market isn't ready. You know, they were just being overly cautious on their behalf. And thank goodness they didn't listen to them because they started an entirely new category that didn't exist before. So that's the first issue. Thank you. That's a great story. I hadn't heard that one before. And I'm sure there were so many stories like that out there as well. I'm sure there are. And unfortunately, I'm sure there are many failure stories that we don't hear um, because those brands didn't make it. Yeah, absolutely. So what was your um, second, the second thing people do wrong? The second thing is how they go about doing that research. So I think the main primary issue with that is how you actually ask the questions. And this probably, what I hear a lot of people say when we talk about market research is, oh, but it's just a conversation. It's just asking questions. I do that all the time. Yes, absolutely. But if you want to get your questions out there in the best way possible, the problem is that I often see people asking questions that are somewhat leading. So an example of that would be, do you like this product or do you love this product? Now, implicit in that question is the assumption that they liked the product at all. And so what ends up happening is you have a question that's slightly leading. It's not being framed in the best way possible. And you end up getting overly positive results. So you're fundamentally actually affecting what your results could be. So what you should rather be doing is asking something that's much more open, like how do you feel about this product and what made you answer that? So coming back to the innocent story, they actually after doing the research with their family and friends, obviously decided they actually believed in their own idea and they were going to still take it forward. They went to a music festival and had a sample stand and they had a sign above the sample stand asking people if they thought that they should give up their day jobs and make smoothies. And then they had two bins where people could toss the um, empty bottles once they'd finished drinking them. One that said yes and one that said no. So a really simple way of finding out how people thought or what people thought of their product and very simple, very non-leading and it gave them a positive answer ultimately and in the end, hence they launched. Of course, what it did miss and what they couldn't have known was whether everyone who trialed it was their ideal customer um, and what they couldn't have known was why people said no, if they did say no. But I still think it's a good start and a good example of having a question that's open enough that you can get to the real response rather than something that is framed in a way that is overly positive. Okay, thank you. So if someone is thinking about carrying out some kind of market research and they're going to go out and do it themselves, what what are good questions they can ask? So... I, I mean, I think before anyone gets to doing a product test and, the, and, and they should absolutely 
include it if they were doing a product test to establish how big it is, is to establish whether there's a need for their product um, or what, what, what problem the product is solving. Because without knowing this, you actually don't know if your product is relevant or not. After that, if you want to simplify it as much as possible, there are three questions that I include without even a question about whether they need to be there or not. And that is how appealing the idea is, if it's still at an idea stage, or how appealing the product is, but just generally how appealing it is. Um, best way to do that is with a scale, so it can go from extremely unappealing to extremely appealing, so you can get that range of response rather than, yes, it's appealing, or no, it's not appealing. Um, so how appealing, how likely they are to buy it or try it, depending on um, what your idea is, and how unique they think the idea is. There's a lot of evidence that those three questions or those three attributes are the key markers of success in a new product launch. Um, but if they wanted to include some extra questions to get some depth and some understanding around what people are um, responding, I would add in things like what they like or dislike about the idea because that gives you some feedback on where you can optimize and improve it. And on the things like what they like, this can help you in your launch communications because you can focus on those things. How relevant it is, how believable the product claim is, if there are any product claims, and what they'd expect to pay for it. As that gives a baseline for where you could be potentially pricing it. That's fantastic. Thank you. That's a really good point. The next thing I wanted to talk about was price and sort of how someone would go about establishing what the ideal price of their product would be. I mean, I have my own ideas on this, but I would love to hear your thoughts on how someone should price their product. I, I will only answer this from a consumer perspective because I am not an expert in how one should price it and how one establishes their um, minimum price point. So I'll leave that to experts like yourself. But the, um, the way to go about asking it with, your ideal client, if you're doing it in some sort of market research, there's a really, really simple way of asking it. And it's actually surprisingly direct because actually I think if you're talking to the right people who are in your category, they generally are quite knowledgeable about price. So it's known as the Van Westendorp pricing meter. It is four questions about price. And basically, you use those four questions to find the sweet spot for um, your pricing from a consumer perspective. So the four questions are, at what price would it be so expensive that you would never consider buying it? At what price would it be so cheap that you'd assume the quality would be poor? At what price would you think it's beginning to get expensive, but you'd still consider it? And at what price would you say it's a bargain, but a great buy for the money? And you basically then get the ranges of those prices and you find the sweet spot where it's not so expensive, not so cheap that it undermines quality, etc. Now, I won't go through all of the ways to analyze that now because there is ample advice online if you just type in Van Westendorp pricing meter about how to actually identify that sweet spot. But that is by far, in my opinion, the best and easiest way of establishing a price point from a consumer perspective. Oh, that's fantastic. I really like that. Thank you. I mean, in the past, I've done my own um, 
price research with potential customers and I've only asked one question which is what would you pay for this and now that you've explained that I see completely yeah why uh, why just asking to give you an idea of a price is actually perhaps not the best way of going about it because what I ended up with was an enormous range like a really big range and I ended up going with the figure that felt best to me anyway so it kind of made the the actual doing the research um not not pointless you know because in in some ways it was it was validating but actually it you know I think the thing of research is you need to be asking the right questions as you've alluded to before and if you're not asking the right questions I guess you can't expect to find answers that are going to be particularly useful exactly but I do think if you are so let's say you're using SurveyMonkey for your research um if you have the free model I think you can only get 10 questions so if you are looking at that going, okay, well, I need to do appeal, I need to do uniqueness, I need to do how likely they are to buy it. I also want to find out who they are, so what age or gender. Oh, look at that. Suddenly, I'm up to five, six, seven questions, so I'm not going to have space to ask another four on pricing. So, you know, in the absence of anything, asking what they'd expect to pay is better than nothing. But as you say, you're going to end up with a very wide range, so you're going to have to be relying more on your intuition but it will give you a sense in any event if the idea that you'd originally had was so far out or so cheap. Um, but typically, especially if you've done it as an open question where they just input any number that they want, which, by the way, I would recommend, rather than you providing the ranges, then you are going to end up with an extremely wide range. Okay, well, that's good to know it was at least worth doing, and that's really helpful. Thank you. So it sounds like SurveyMonkey could actually be quite a good way of people gathering this kind of information as well, would you say, without, you know, I guess it's a midway point between um, sort of just looking around in Facebook groups, actually going out and speaking to people face-to-face. So a SurveyMonkey survey could actually be a really good option. Absolutely. If you are wanting to do some formal research, survey monkey or type form, I don't know what the limit on type forms, um, number of questions and the free model is, but either of those are an excellent way of doing it. And then you can go and post those onto Facebook groups, in fact, where your ideal customers are or send it to your email list if you've got one. So they are pretty handy, actually, as um survey tools if you are wanting to get something with some hard numbers behind it that's fantastic and thank you because you've provided so much great advice here and um, lots of ways that people can hopefully go out and do this for free so before before we finish so what would be your number one piece of advice for anyone looking to create a product to sell i i think it would probably be that they need to know who the product is for, that they need to know what need that person has and what need your product is fulfilling. I genuinely think that if you don't have that as the starting point, you don't know where to find them, you don't know how to price it, you don't know whether it's relevant, you don't know how to market it or communicate the idea. So that would be my advice. Know exactly who it's for and build on from there. That's perfect. Fantastic. Thank you. And is there anything else that you wanted to share with everyone, Abby? I, I think there's one last thing that I would add as a, an option if you are wanting to do any research, which is going and having a look at your competitors, going and seeing what they're doing, where they're doing it, um, what price they're selling a similar product at, assuming that there's something 
Um, if you've obviously got a completely groundbreaking idea, then that's a different scenario. But going and having a look where they are and what, um, how they present it, even if it's online, for example, how they are promoting it, what imagery they're using, I think that that as a technique for market research goes an incredibly long way. I agree. I also something I also suggest people to do is where there's reviews of similar products to actually read all the reviews as well, because that can give you a really good idea of what your competitors are doing well and where perhaps you know they're what they're doing could be improved upon, which I think is you know really good to know. Absolutely, and it gives you a, a potential communication tool if you can see what the gaps are. Fantastic, thank you. And where can people find you if they listen to this podcast, they're really interested in you and your services, where can they come to find out a bit more about you? Um, I am on Instagram as Embark Loves Consumers and my website, which has my blog with a lot of detail on tips and tricks for conducting market research, which is embark-insight.com. Thank you so much. And I'll link both of those up in the show notes so people can find and get to them easily from there. So thank you so much for your time today. I think this has been really helpful. I hope that everyone listening finds um, finds this incredibly useful and goes away and puts some of this into action. So thank you so much. Oh, thank you, Vicky. It's been an absolute pleasure. So thank you so much for listening to this interview with Abby. I hope you found it useful. I know that I certainly did. If you have any feedback or any follow-up questions, we'd love to hear from you. Email vicky at tinychipmonk.com. I'd also, as always, really appreciate a review if you've got the time to leave some. Um, That would mean so much. And finally, I know there was a lot covered today. um, And you can get this entire episode as a detailed blog post, which is available um, via the link in the show notes or at blog.tinychipmonk.com. Speak to you soon. If you've been inspired to start a podcast in 2024, I really recommend my podcast host, Captivate. Captivate were my top pick when I started podcasting four years ago because of how easy it was for a complete novice like me to get started. I've stuck with them for the last four years because Captivate is still really simple to use. They keep adding great new features like the ability to share ads like these and they've just been really reliable. So when you're ready to start your own podcast, you can use the link in the show notes and get a free seven day trial with Captivate.